I get on my own nerve. If I can go through a washing machine and just kind of clean things up here a little bit, I would sometimes. But then my psychologist, she tells me what you have is unique and is to be cherished and it is to be loved and it's also to be respected. And what I've learned and what I'm continuously learning working with other people that I have to give them as much grace learning about my acronyms, my ADHD, my PTSD, my ASD, as much as I'm expecting them to give me that grace too. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Okay, we are going to jump right in with episode 123, in which I interview Denisha Michelle Seals. Now, as the title of this episode indicates, we are discussing some pretty heavy topics this week, including childhood sexual abuse and complex PTSD, distrust in the healthcare system, and culturally incompetent providers. So please proceed with caution if these are difficult topics for you or you may want to skip this week too, that's okay. Denisha is a spoken word artist, award-winning filmmaker, and author from Omaha, Nebraska. A survivor of childhood sexual abuse and trauma, she now advocates for more awareness and understanding of the emotional toll abuse victims experience, particularly children of color. Using the power of her pen to lift the voices of the marginalized and victimized, Denisha's uplifting stories inspire readers of all ages to be strong, fearless, and full of hope. Denisha and I talk about her life with multiple diagnoses of ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, and complex PTSD, as well as her experiences with mental health services. We also talk about her children's book, Butterflies in Me, and the incredible work she's doing with women and girls, and how her Afro-Indigenous heritage has shaped her work and her worldview. Much love and healing to all of you out there. Oh my goodness, Denisha, I am so excited to interview you. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. I was reading some of the articles about you and I'm just so profoundly moved by your experience. So let's start now. This is obviously an ADHD podcast. So I want to kind of hear about when you were diagnosed with ADHD, because I know you were first diagnosed with PTSD, correct? Yes, I was. Okay. So let, so what was kind of happening where you started connecting the dots around the ADHD portion? Oh my goodness. I was diagnosed late with PTSD. In college, right? Yeah. Yeah. In college, my senior year, and which is mind boggling to me because I was sexually assaulted at five years old and I was in therapy from the time I was eight to now. And no one, no therapist ever addressed what trauma was or the side effects of it. So I actually didn't know I had PTSD um, until I was diagnosed and then it all made sense. And once the PTSD symptoms made sense, I recognized in my undergrad and in high school and elementary and middle school that I also had ADHD. So my then psychiatrist had me do an assessment And she's like, oh, my God, it is off the scales, your ADHD. And I said, well, I create things and I complete them. And she's like, there's two different types of ADHD a lot of people don't know about. There's the ADHD where it's a lack of focus. And then there's the ADHD where you're hyper-focused on multiple things. I'm fortunately or unfortunately one of those people who are hyper-focused on a multitude of things and it drives people crazy around me, especially when I'm telling them they're going slow when really they're neurotypical individuals who may be a little bit overwhelmed by my uh, neurodiverse mind. So yes, I I would say I was diagnosed in my 20s uh, with ADHD. 
Yeah, I know. Is it? Don't you wish there was a remote control where you could just speed up somebody to one and a half speed when they're talking? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and it and it doesn't help that I'm also very blunt and I'm fascinated with words. And sometimes I just don't have the right words to say when I'm telling someone that they need to speed up. Like with my spouse, I'm like, okay, yes, I get it. Come on. All right. That's all right. I get it. And he's like, you have to let me finish. And I'm like, I, I know. And it's like, I'm, I'm worlds ahead of you on what you're going to say. Maybe because we've been together for almost 10 years, but maybe too, it's because I have ADHD and I just need you to just speak a lot faster so I can go back to what this disparate energy uh, in my mind was doing. So yes. Does your partner have ADHD? He does not. He is one of the most neurotypical individuals you will probably meet in your life, which is a good thing. He balances me. Um, he's also a professor. So I say he has his hands full with me. He says he has his arms full and his shoulders full with me. I'm also autistic. I'm also on the spectrum. So I say I have a bunch of acronyms, you know, and I feel sometimes they compete with each other. Here I have the ASD and the ADHD and then the CPTSD. Sometimes they're all having conversations with each other. Who's going to be dominant today? And he's just there along for the ride. So <laughs> now, have you seen the Venn diagram of PTSD and ADHD? Have you seen those images? I find them super helpful. I have. Now, do, when you look at that Venn diagram, are you just all of the above? I am. And then when you incorporate ASD, mm. uh, my, my brain, I'm very interested to see what my brain looks like especially with those acronyms, uh, the similarities and the contradictions between them too, it, it, it's, it's really overwhelming at times. Sometimes I don't know what's happening when it's happening. I don't know if I'm being triggered by something with my, my PTSD or if it's the ASD where I'm being over-censored <laughs> or if it's the ADHD where I'm just overwhelmed. So I got a lot going on in this brain of mine, and um, I, I would really love to see what it looks like. I really feel that the ADHD is in competition a lot with the ASD. ASD, the list, the organization, the the yearning for a routine, and then the ADHD comes in and is like, girl, please. <laughs> that was cute that you wrote a list. That was nice. That was a nice and and it could get really, really frustrating when it's like you want to go to the gym and you have goals, but then your mind gets sidetracked on something that really wasn't there in the beginning when you were making that list. <laughs> so you get it. Uh, I know my favorite is the uh, I think I saw it was a tweet where it was like, my ADHD makes me lose my phone all the time, but I can never find it because the autism turned off the ringer. <laughs> Yes. And that drives my spouse crazy. He's like, why do you have a phone if you don't know when someone's calling? I'm like, hey, I'm sorry. I, I Sometimes I don't even know. I tell people I get on my own dang on nerve. And people are like, I've never heard anyone say that before. Well, you've never had this mind. Uh <laughs> I feel like we say it all the time, right? And that's yes. definitely, I feel like I'm with my people because I've said that before. I think I've even shared that story on the podcast. I had a roommate in university who said I was, he was like, you're so frustrating to live with. And I was like, I know, I can't get away from me. Right. <laughs> I get on my own nerve. If I can go through a washing machine and just kind of clean things up here a little bit, I would sometimes. But then my psychologist, she tells me, what you have is unique and is to be cherished and it is to be loved and it's also to be respected. And what I've learned and what I'm continuously learning working with other people that I have to give them as much grace learning about my acronyms, my ADHD, my PTSD, my ASD, as much as I'm expecting them to give me that grace too. So I have to be just as patient with them as that I'm expecting them to be patient with me because it's, it's really not easy to do group things with me, with the things that I come with. You know, I, I had a board member um, and I love her to death, you know, and what I love about her the most is that, you know, first she apologizes. That part drives me crazy. I'm like, you don't have to apologize to me. She's like, I'm sorry. 
but we need to talk. Priorities, this, that. She's very organized and, and, and linear and sequential. And then you have me that's disparate. It's not that I'm not doing the work. It's just, it's like, hey, well, we were all here at one. You're at 15 right now. Can you get back to one? What steps can we do to get you back to one? Because you're already down there. And so (laughs) I have to recognize that I have to be patient with them as much as they have to be patient with me. And not everybody's blessed to have those gifts in their lives, like a, a fiance that's incredibly patient, who's more patient than I would be. Pa- I'm not patient with myself. He's more patient with me than I am with myself. And then to have a friend and a board member who who has no problem calling me out and still having me be accountable for my acronyms, you know, can be hard on me at times. But then again, I am very sensitive. So, you know, when she's like, you're going to have to take accountability If you need help with these things, understand we're here to help, but you have to be patient and understand that the way we do things is not going to be the way that your disparate mind is going to do it. And those boundaries that come with neurodivergent individuals, I don't like to say versus neurotypical because that that means it's a dichotomy. And I, I want people to understand that, yes, we're all human. Let's humanize the human. But in order to do that, it it's grace and it's understanding and it's patience. And I'm learning all those things with myself as well as with others. So that's something I just wanted to throw out there. Let's just be patient with one another. Yeah, I know. And it's something else that we've talked about on this podcast, too. The, the importance of the label when you've lived your whole life feeling like you there was something off right like there you were different and there was something something was wrong you felt broken and then to suddenly have this diagnosis that label is so important right it, it is such a so important to that journey and yet at the same time also you know realizing that once you once you're given that label that everybody else is going to start looking at you very differently right i want people to look at me very differently though because <laughs> i am yeah you know, so I, again, I think it's all subjective and perspective. For me, my with my subjective experiences, I want people to actually recognize like, look, you know what? Denisha may be very intelligent, hyper-creative, but she also has ADHD. So with her ADHD and knowing that with the research that they do on their own, as well as taking time to get to know me, they're going to learn and I'm going to learn with them how we can better work with each other. And to me, it will not happen unless people are taught about the acronyms of ADHD or other things of that nature that comes with neurodiversity. If you don't see that I am different, if you don't see that I see the world differently or I feel differently or the connections that I make are different, then you are not going to humanize me. So in order for an individual to take time to humanize me, what we need to do is first and foremost, understand what ADHD is and what it looks like in different people. And once you take time to remove those boxes that we create around ourselves and others, we will then begin to recognize we're really not so different. And if we took time to recognize these things, I believe we would love ourselves enough to where we wouldn't attach negative imagery, negative words, negative thoughts to these beautiful labels like ADHD. I think it's beautiful. I will tell my sister in a minute, girl, it is eight o'clock in the morning. Stop asking me questions. I have not taken my Vivans this morning, okay? Let me get up. You about to ask me a plethora of questions. I will tell people, look, I got my ADHD situation going on right now. Just give me some space. Or I will be like, look, I got PTSD situation going on right now today where I'm hypervigilant. So it's best for you to just say your name as you're walking down the stairs, up the stairs or around me so you don't get punched in the face because I'm like hypervigilant. Like, what was that? You know, I know that's that's not everyone. And I'm aware that society projects what a normative thinking is. Normative ideology is about what's acceptable. But I break all that stuff down when I tell you, when I say to my mom, mom, I got anxiety today. 
I don't know if it's because I'm over censored. Maybe I need to do my sensory exercise and press down three times and release to be present. Or if it's the ADHD where there's just so much going on right now that I am now over reacting to some stimuli that maybe I'm not, whatever it may be, the ADHD. I believe that the more communicative I am around people about what's going on with me, the more I am humanized. I am not responsible for any negative thing that anyone thinks about me or the label. That has more to do with their myopia, uh, their insular thinking, and maybe some projection that they haven't dealt with some of their own challenges. Maybe I'm a trigger. So, hey, I love this ADHD self, (laughs) whatever it is, whenever it is. Right. All right. Let's talk about trauma, if you don't mind. I don't mind at all. Right. I'm like, one thing I love about ADHD women is that we have no time for small talk. We just get right to the trauma. Right. So, so here we go. So now trauma is something that I think is woven throughout this podcast. We talk about it a lot. I am fascinated by it because I feel like trauma is, is integral to the female experience, right? Uh, on various levels. And, and especially living in this country, living in this country right now, living in this country since in, in the last few years, it's just been nonstop trauma. I know in your experience, you had early childhood sexual abuse from a family member. Yes. I also had that experience. I was a little older. I was eight, which is still tragically young. So it's interesting because I think a lot about my ADHD and how, even though they say it's genetic, I always wonder, you know, I don't have a lot of memories from my earlier in my childhood. So I always wonder, are my ADHD symptoms, were they triggered by this childhood of trauma? And then you think about all of the like small T traumas that women experience, you know, every time you are harassed, every time you're stared at, every time you're put down, like all of these ways in which we kind of experience trauma that I'm like, is this leading to more ADHD presentations in women, right? Is, are we, do we all have ADHD or all we, or are we just traumatized? (laughs) And so I'm curious with your perspective of just thinking about kind of, and it's so hard to tell because for you, this happened so early in your life, right? Like, how do you even begin to, to parse like what is what with these symptoms or do you, are you just sort of like, this is me, this is the package that I got. You know, in terms of it being genetic, looking at my father's side of the family, I can definitely see it. Looking at my brothers and my sister, as well as nieces and my nephew, I can see the genetic component of it. For me, I think the trauma with having ADHD, and there is trauma associated with it, I would like to bring up a cultural perspective here. When a child has ADHD, a little brown child has ADHD, right? The first thing the parent does or someone in the household thinks it's a disciplinary issue. So what do you do? In my community, you whoop them. Mm -hmm. You take a belt and you whoop them. I mean, I've, I've had white friends who was getting whoopings too. They called it spankings, which I used to laugh. Like, I used to be like, black people call it whoopings and white people call it spankings. But that, that was just, it was just, you know, even language it used to be, again, I'm sorry, I'm fascinated with, with words. But um, what you do then is say that this child has disciplinary issues. This child does not listen to authority. This child has to be disciplined harder. But what that does is add to trauma, add to the trauma of the child who may actually be a very brilliant, sensitive child, but the parents lack the patience of comprehending that maybe there are some challenges going on. Have we ever thought that maybe if they're in the classroom and they're getting up and they're walking around, maybe the work is very easy for them. Maybe they finished all of their work and they're walking around talking to other students to encourage them to get done faster so they don't get bored so easily in the classroom. So I remember with my sister, for example, you know, it's not my story to tell. The first thing they did with my my mom is let's put her on Ritalin. My sister didn't need Ritalin. What my sister needed in her special education class was to understand that even in special ed, one size does not fit all. Like my sister would tell me how she would want to learn multiplication 
and these things while she was in the first grade. And they're like, oh, no, you never would have to worry about learning that you have ADHD. You're in special education and you're on Ritalin. So to me, I feel that the lack of systemic response, the lack of parental response is what aids in the trauma. The worst thing anyone has ever said to me was, you are too smart to have ASD. You accomplished too much to have ADHD. Or, Denisha, you're too strong to have PTSD. So again, it's those labels. And I think it's the projection of what happens in the media, lack of, I won't say intelligence, but lack of awareness, even within our own communities. For example, when I was diagnosed with PTSD, I started getting very upset with that psychiatrist. I said, I'm not a military veteran. Only military veterans have PTSD. And she said that is one of the biggest battles she has to face with her clients when she is doing their assessments based off of what the media projects of what PTSD looks like. And they always align it with veterans. If you have been sexually violated as a child or even as an adult, you're not going to walk away from that not traumatized. Let's just be honest. But I think it's the lack of education, the lack of awareness, and I think the lack of patience and access to parents who may not know their child has challenges, may know that there's something different, but maybe they don't have the access to uh, community counseling programs where they can learn what challenges they themselves may have in their children. So in a big wraparound to your question with ADHD and trauma, I feel it is a collective issue based off of the knowledge that is projected into our communities, into our households, or the lack of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think there's also just a mistrust of the system, right? A lot of people in my community have a lot of mistrust. You know, we were experimented on. The famous OBGYN experimented on slave women, okay? Tuskegee. Yes. And then uh, vaccinations or where they were sterilizing women through Planned Parenthood, right? But yet you tell us to trust you with our experiences and that you will help us. One of the things that I do with providers, practitioners, is the first thing I tell them is you cannot help me as a Afro-Indigenous woman that has these acronyms who is marginalized in society unless you understand the historical trauma. If I come into your office and I say that I am hurting from something as a therapist and you have no understanding of my historical trauma, which led to social trauma, which led to familial trauma, you are going to use a Eurocentric baseline on how you are going to help me and you are going to fail. And that's going to add to my trauma. If I get my healing through uh, an ahipe, which is a sweat lodge or the church, and I'm coming to you with my spiritual principles that I was raised with, or I'm coming to you with scripture about healing. And the first thing you do is tell me that that's not important or that's not something that you're comfortable with because maybe you weren't raised on it or you feel that psych is about the mind when really it's truly the word means spirit and you you neglect that aspect of my healing, you cannot help me. You are a part of the problem. So what you have to do in order to help me as an Afro-Indigenous woman, and I say Afro-Indigenous because I'm fully aware of my African ancestors and my Indigenous ancestors. But unfortunately, in America, they look at my phenotype and my skin complexion and they call me Black. And... <laughs> You know, like I tell people, even that has a trauma component to it, because if you're not addressing me the way that I address myself and the way that my family addresses me, the way that my loved ones and my community addresses me, you're disrespecting me. I will never walk up to a Jewish woman and say, you know, as a white woman, you have to feel. And she's like, no, well, actually, I have the Jewish female exp woman experience. I don't think that's fair. And I wouldn't dare want to add to any trauma that who knows she may have had as a child, maybe being picked on for being Jewish or maybe 
you know, you never know the trauma that comes with what someone is holding on to. So it's imperative that we be sensitive about how we say things and which in the way we say things. So when I talk to these practitioners, I use the Plato. He speaks of boxes, right? And the first thing we do with these boxes is we say them, they, those people over there, and we and us. But all that does is create division. That creates things like ageism, sexism, (laughs) discrimination, prejudice. So when you break down these boxes, we then begin to humanize the human. And when we humanize the human, we, we humanize the human experience and understand that that is diversity, first and foremost. So we should take more time recognizing who we are and not what the world says we are supposed to be and how the world says we're supposed to act or look like or be. And I think um, what you're doing with your podcast is just amazing, allowing women to be humanized and explain, you know, their own subjective experiences, I think it's admirable. Well, thank you. I mean, so many women have, since this podcast have started, I've lost track of how many times I've heard such depressing stories of women who have gone to their medical providers or gone to their therapists with this lived experience, right? Of And, and coming to them and saying, I think I have ADHD and being told, just this utter like lack of curiosity, like you were saying, this utter lack of cultural competency from therapists and providers where they have no curiosity and then telling the woman what they think their experience is or should be, which my reaction is just like, get the hell out of there. Like any counselor who is not keeping their mouth shut and letting you dictate what the experience is and what your lived experience is needs to lose their license <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Like, it's so tragic. And then things like that happen when less than 2% of psychiatrists in the United States are of color. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, but even then I've had an experience where I've had women, I had a female African-American psychiatrist that was just the worst because she had this mindset of, girl, we superwoman. Uh-uh. You got to be strong. You can't claim this. You can't do this. And it's like, Girl, do you got some trauma that you have not dealt with? Is that why you became a psychiatrist to <laughs> to deal with your things, but not really deal with them, but project them onto your clients? So even then, it you got to be careful about that too, because I've I've had experiences with you know a psychiatrist of color who was just though I've had two psychiatrists of color that were just useless. And useless because they had their own trauma and they became psychiatrists to deal with their trauma, but not recognizing that they were projecting their unhealed issues onto someone that had nothing to do with it. So I would say run and it's okay. Yeah. And it is okay. You know, I will switch a psychiatrist in a minute. You know, I used to feel guilty and I used to feel bad. I used to be like, oh God, what is, what are they going to think of me? Are they going to think I'm weak? Are they going to think I'm crazy? And it's like, you know what? Hell no. I have agency as a human being to say when I am not pleased with something or if I feel disrespected or if I am uncomfortable and I will come to you as a woman and explain to you my my issues with maybe communication or lack thereof, or maybe some projections or whatever the situation may be. And if we cannot come to a solid ground moving forward where it would be healthy for me and them, I will walk away in a heartbeat and loving myself in the middle of doing that. And I've had a strong man to validate my experiences. And I've had an awesome friend who's like, F that, you don't deserve it. And I know not everybody has that, but to advocate for yourself, you have no idea that the person behind you will see that or hear about it and say, you know what? Yes, I'm going to do the same. Mm, yeah, Yeah. This is my health. If you think about it, this is my mental health. This is nothing to play around with. 
you know, you have to listen to me. If I'm telling you that the Vivance is not helping me, then let's talk about Concerta or let's talk about Adderall. Or even if I, maybe I don't want to be on ADHD medication anymore, you know, let's have that conversation. But you do not have any right to tell me that I can't do something or I shouldn't do something because of what that could look like. You know, I appreciate the FDA warnings, but your opinion off of what may be good for me and what not may be good for me, it needs to be understood. It's still just a medical opinion, but I'm in my body, right? Mm -hmm. I'd like to take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know I am a big proponent of therapy. Therapy provides me the best opportunity for verbal processing, something that is so important for my kind of brain and my sense of self. What I love about BetterHelp is that it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy that's done securely online from the comfort of your home. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and it's available for clients worldwide. So you get access to a broad range of expertise that might not be available to you locally. It also tends to be more affordable than traditional offline therapy, and financial aid is available. If you visit their website and read their testimonials, there are actually quite a few reviews that specifically reference help with ADHD. As a special offer for listeners of the Women and ADHD podcast, you'll get 10% off your first month. Simply sign up at betterhelp.com slash womenADHD. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash womenADHD. And there's a link in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The Lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working, and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyper-focus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, It's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. So I want to talk also about, ask you about stigma, uh, mental health stigma, because I know it's something you work on a lot. You've done a lot of work on this, and I want to talk about your documentaries too. But I'm curious, the the stigma with mental health, especially in the African-American communities, is the stigma around mental health, do you think it comes from the, the mis- systemic mistrust of the system? Or do you think that there's deeper kind of cultural roots there? It's both. It's definitely both, especially when you have elder African-Americans, you know, and again, I'm Afro-Indigenous, I'm I'm Native and I'm African. So when it comes to the African uh, side of my family or the community, the stigmas associated with it comes from the idea of weakness. When you 
say things like, oh, I'm depressed. It's like you have a weak mind or the slaves didn't need therapy. And it's like, well, if you actually take time to shut your mouth and this is I've said this, I'm just being honest. I told you I'm very blunt. I I don't mind confrontation as long as it's understood that you can't say dumb things and think you can get away with it, especially with someone that have had these experiences. Right. So I've had people actually say, well, Denisha, depression is a choice. And it's like, oh, I didn't know that I woke up this morning and decided to have a chemical imbalance in my brain that made me respond and react to things like this or lack of response. Right. So. You kind of have to sometimes challenge people with their own mindsets, because when you realize they really just didn't deal with their own stuff. And a lot of the stigma associated with it is, well, the slaves did not need therapy. It's like you couldn't have been property. You couldn't have been raped. You couldn't have been degraded. You couldn't have had your kids sold. You know, there were even slave stories where the slave master would literally line up a group of pregnant slave women, right? And they will rip the babies out of them and they will stump on that baby to instill fear in other slaves to not run. There's no way you could have seen that. There's no way you could have been referred to being stripped of your religion, stripped of your language, stripped of your name, stripped of your land. And you tell me that you come out of that a hundred percent healthy. So that is my response to the stigma associated in the African-American community when it goes to the slaves did not need mental health treatment. Yes, the hell they did. Okay. And if they did, and and, and we, we should have, but then again, we wouldn't have trusted the system that broke us down and did the things that they did to provide it to us. And that and to this day is still one of the issues in the African-American community, that stigma associated with reaching out to the less than 2% of psychiatrists who may be of color, right? That look like me, therefore I don't have to explain myself, right? I also believe it is a systemic issue as well. I have gone into therapy sessions with white female therapists where I'm telling them, hey, do you have any books by any women of color that have been through what I've been through or just got diagnosed with ADHD or who have PTSD? And this therapist goes, and she's a white woman, she goes, well, that's not important. So I'm just going to give you a book by Victor Franco, who was a Holocaust survivor. No, you are not going to give me a book from a Jewish man that survived the Holocaust and tell me that other women of color who've been through what I've been through that I can relate to is less important than him, which is to me very disrespectful, right? But she was just doing what she was trained to do, conditioned to do, ignore the subjective experience and have the messianic complex that she knew better for me. So she got angry and she told me I was too smart for my own good. But what she really was saying was she was uncomfortable with the fact that I was challenging her deficits within her own thinking. Lo and behold, she actually turned around and said, I just have to remember you have a college degree. Most African-Americans that I work with, they're kind of court ordered uh, to be here or, you know, they just come to talk. And I just have to remember, you're just one of the different ones. Now, I know this is your podcast. You're going to have to bleep me out. But bitch, are you kidding me? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And she said this and she said this and she even screamed at me when my fiance was sitting in the room with us because You know, he wanted to learn how he can better understand my acronyms. And she yelled at me and him. Now, if you know my spouse, you know, he's uh, he's an alpha male. He's six college degrees. And she spoke about how we intimidated her by our education and by our knowledge and by the fact that we understood agency on what was not going to be tolerated. I had every right to tell her that I was not comfortable reading a book by Victor Franco, a Holocaust survivor, in conjunction with the fact that I am a Afro-Indigenous rape victim that have just been diagnosed with PTSD, ADHD, and I'm just wanting to read stories by women of color 
who have had some of my own subjective experiences. And then you yell and scream at me and tell me that women of color and their subjective experiences mean absolutely nothing compared to a Jewish man who survived the Holocaust because his trauma was global. Oh my goodness. When I tell you now, when I tell you that that is the majority experience of a lot of my friends and family have experienced when they've gone into therapy sessions. So again, I feel that the system did not prepare that therapist, not only to do the first thing you're supposed to do, uh, listen, because you know, that's, that's really difficult to do, right? So listen, hear, comprehend, and empathize. Those four things she was not taught. If she was taught, she would have understood immediately how offensive it was for her to tell me that women of color experiences with trauma is nothing compared to the experience of a man who's Jewish and survived the Holocaust. You know, that's just one of many experiences that I've had where individuals who were taught in the system were very ill-prepared with someone like me. So I could just imagine um, if I did come in with rage. Uh, I'm sorry that was your experience. That sounds awful. And, and, and that's the other thing too, like, you know, talking about those traumas too, which I think, especially with neurodivergence, those situations, those interactions with mental health professionals, with medical professionals, those are traumatic, so traumatic in themselves the constant just microaggressions that happen when you are not believed, right? Fundamentally. Yeah. And it's sad that everybody, when I started telling them what she did and what she said, they believed me. They were like, yeah, I can believe she did that. That's just how she is, you know? So, <laughs> but then you have a mentally ill person, right? Talking about an, a bad experience with a therapist who in a lot of ways have leverage over that mentally ill patient, right? It's it's unique. It's unique. I even think we need to stop saying patient when it comes to the aspect. I think we, I mean, we're really customers. Because <laughs> when you have that, that doctor-patient relationship, there is a power dynamic there. And that's where people don't exercise, are less likely to exercise their agency. So no, I'm a paying customer. I will be treated as such, you know, so. <laughs> yeah. Any other parents out there who have struggled to instill good financial habits into their kids? I know I have. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Go Henry by Acorns, the smart debit card and app for kids six through 18. With Go Henry, kids can learn about money, set spending and saving goals, and even track chores and earn allowance money right within the app. They learn the value of money by using their GoHenry debit cards, while we as parents can set spend limits and help guide their journey while staying informed every step of the way. It gives me so much peace of mind to know that I'm using a smart tool to proactively teach my kids about money and prepare them for future success. Set your kids up for success and get started today at GoHenry.com slash women ADHD. Again, that's GoHenry.com slash women ADHD. TNCs apply, renews from $4.99 per month unless canceled. So so let me just walk through the timeline. So you were in University of uh, Nebraska, right? Yes. When did you make your doc first documentary? Um, I was a senior. Uh, actually, when I first got diagnosed with PTSD, um, I said to myself, there are a lot of rape victims that need to tell their story and don't have the platform. So I created the Hear Our Voices project by, uh, first, I had no money, of course, I'm a college student. So I called KETV News Station and I asked if they had a videographer that had some free time. Uh, he called me back and he's like, well, what would you like to do? I said, well, first I want you to do a story on sexual assault and the romanticization that America has on sexual assault victims and how they are more, America is more likely to empathize with a particular rape story than America would be any other story. So they did the story. I knew a bunch of people who wanted to tell their stories. I have men and women from different cultures, different 
I don't like to use the word race. There's really no such thing as race. It's a social construct, but race backgrounds, male and female telling their stories of sexual assault, child molestation, and rape. I did not tell my story in the Hear Our Voices project because when I was diagnosed, I felt that it was more important to advocate for other people finally being diagnosed. I had power in it. It was more of an ego issue in the beginning, but the power that I felt once I finally had that diagnosis, I wanted to give that power to other people in telling their story. You know, I have a man telling his story. He's now a woman. At the time, he was a a homosexual man, African-American, who was sexually assaulted by his uncle. And when people in my community found out he was raped as a child, they go, oh, that's why you're gay. And he's like, no, (laughs) no. So we had social issues within social issues within social issues being addressed in the Hear Our Voices. And it won a film award, um, a documentary award. I am the first Afro-Indigenous woman in the state of Nebraska to win a uh, film documentary award. I had a Native American who could pass for white. And when her daughter was sexually assaulted, the police officer emailed her and goes, it's a good thing your daughter was a good girl or we wouldn't have taken this seriously. And he put quotations good. And she said, she asked him, what do you mean by that? And he was like, well, it's a good thing she's white because we wouldn't have taken this seriously. He had no idea that they were living on the reservation and that the fact that she could pass for white, he took her daughter's rape case seriously. So in the film, when she talked about how her cousins who came forward, who were my complexion or even darker, would talk about their sexual assaults that happened on the reservation or off, the police, the same police that she went to, ignored them, but took her daughter's case seriously because she passed for white. And so again, there was more social issues within social issues within the film. And to this day, one of the challenges with that documentary film is that organizations that I've reached out to that are in creation because they are advocating, so they say, for sexual assault victims, tell me that my film is too real. They aren't comfortable with the film because that means that these things are real. And I'm like, wait a minute, we are supposed to come to your organ. You know, I I have an email from an individual that worked at Project Harm, that works at Project Harmony. And he saw the film, him and his staff. And I have him emailing me stating, our therapist and our counselors will be too triggered to watch this film because that means it is too real. And I'm thinking to myself, what? The film is to encourage allies, policymakers, lawmakers to recognize that they need to hear our voices. Hear this black man's voice when he was sexually assaulted by his uncle. Hear this Native American voice. Hear this Catholic woman's voice that when she was raped because she was Catholic, it was better off that she killed herself than actually lose her virtue. Can we talk? These are issues that you are dealing with when you ask us victims, survivors, warriors to come to you and ask for assistance, but yet you have the authority to open your hands and hold on to us. But what you do is reject it because there's it's too real. And that's not an organization I want to work for. And I just think it's sad that they get millions to assist with these social issues, but they're not upfront with the fact that they're more comfortable if it's romanticized. He spoke about how if the victims didn't go into detail about what happened and if the victims, I guess, weren't so this happened to me, it needed, it didn't, it shouldn't have happened, but I'm telling my story because I never want this to happen again. That is the challenge of that, that film. And, you know, I got a vision with that film. God and my ancestors told me to make that film, just like God and the ancestors told me to do Butterflies and Me. And some of the challenges I'm having with Butterflies and Me is the same challenges I'm having with my films, not just the Hear Our Voices project. And I just think it's a tragedy that there are survivors that are 
still being shut down by the system because it's too real. Yeah, nobody wants nobody wants to admit this is happening to girls, to children, to women everywhere. Boys, you know. Boys, yeah. I mean, it's nobody wants to admit how widespread it is. Now, I'm sorry. If you're not equipped, get equipped. I have had to get equipped with my ADHD. <laughs> I have had to get equipped with walking in my light. These people who are being funded, okay, who receive millions, they need to get equipped with the truth or they need to move out the way for there to really be assistance for survivors and victims and warriors. You know, I believe there's a difference between the three. Each of us still need assistance and allyship. So if you can't walk in that light that you project, to, it's in the communities that we're here to help you as Project Harmony or whatever other organization, and you turn your back on us because it's too real, that's a problem. That's adding to the trauma. So again, I believe that's a systemic issue as well. Now, are we able to purchase the documentary? Is it available to, to be viewed anywhere at this Absolutely. point? Absolutely, it is. I will be doing a virtual film event for the documentary. But if there's anyone who wants to see it ahead of time, they will be able to purchase it through me. They can just email me directly, denisha at watertospirit.com. And I will provide that to them for the $12.50 it cost. <laughs> oh, perfect. Okay, I'll put that link in the show notes too. Now you more recently, you uh, published Butterflies in Me last year. Yes, I am the first Afro-Indigenous woman to be published with Boys Town Press here in Nebraska. They've been here for a hundred years and they're just now recognizing, fortunately or unfortunately, that there are all types of storytellers. So I ended up getting a, a vision from... God, the great spirit and my ancestors about butterflies and me. And I was at the pinnacle of my pain, having to do EMDR therapy, having to address my, my own crap, you know, that's in that, that basement that uh, we don't want to address that we put it in the basement and forget about it or that garage and forget about it. So I had to start the process of cleaning things out and I didn't feel strong enough and I wasn't strong enough. And so I prayed and I asked God to help me. And I said, I don't know what I need to do, but I'm only human and I need you. And so I ended up getting a vision of, of God and my ancestors telling me about butterflies and me. I wake my fiance up and it's like three o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, uh, God and the ancestors just told me to write a children's book. He said, okay, that means it'll be successful. And he turns over and goes to sleep. And I'm like, wait, wait, wake up. I've never written a book before. I don't know what's happening. What is happening? And so one of my ancestors told me that butterflies is a metaphor for the child's mental health. When you think of a butterfly, you think of animation with the color, vibrance, and freedom, right? But if you pull on the wings too tightly, it will never fly again. And that's what I think of a child's mental health, strong, but fragile, and it needs to be protected and it needs to be understood when it's in that cocoon, leave it alone, you know, let it do exactly what it's supposed to do. But when it's time for them to fly, you have already provided them of everything that they're going to need to transition into their wings and learn how to fly. So each character actually came to me in a dream. I have four characters. It's an anthology. And at the end of each story is uh, an affirmation an adult gives them is you're special, strong, and you did nothing wrong. Oh. Yeah, somebody would have told me that as a child. I'll tell you. Well, oh, my God. I want to cry. Uh, me too. So, uh, And a lot of kids do cry when I do author visits. You know, I'm also available for author visits. But the children, they cry. No one has ever told them that they were special, that they were strong and that they did nothing wrong. And each character, you know, multicultural characters. Um, I have a boss who is a immigrant from Africa. I have uh, Kenya, 
who wants to sing in the church choir, but she has a horrible anxiety from uh, a car accident. So social anxiety is played a factor in her being able to show the world, you know, her gifts. Right. And then you have Lulu White Bear, who's actually named after my auntie, one of my aunts. Uh, and then who's a Native American who her best friend was her grandmother. And when her grandmother transitioned, she used her gifts and talents that she had to assist with her healing of losing her grandmother. Each of the youth in the stories, you know, even Javier, uh, each of them, they all have gifts and talents that the adults recognized they had to help them with their healing process of understanding, yes, you have anxiety. Yes, you have PTSD. Uh, yes, you have ADHD. You know, yes, you have depression from grief, but you're still special, strong, and you did nothing wrong. And let's use these gifts that you have to help you with your healing to understand that. So Lulu would write short stories of uh, ancestors her grandmother told her about before she was born and share them with uh, kids in the community. That's beautiful. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. God, I wish I had had that message as a kid, too. Yeah. Me too. I was so angry. <laughs> I've often, you know, I think a lot, a lot of the own work that I've done with the, the trauma from my childhood has been less around the sexual assault and more around the way adults reacted to it and made me feel like I did something to deserve it. You know what I mean? That, and, and kind of all of that, I find way more traumatic. I have to agree. You know, I was still forced to be around my, my predator. And it was because my, my mother would say, that's still my son. And it's like, I'm still your daughter. So that means I'm less than him. Or is it the fact that you want to portray a family image that's not true? Or is it because you're going to have to address the fallacies within your own parenting and how you were parenting? You know, all of my grandma's daughters were sexually assaulted and all of my grandmother's granddaughters were abused and most of her grandsons, as well as my grandmother. Right. So it is a cycle. And what happens in that cycle is if there's someone who's going to break out on it, like I did, you become the black sheep. But when you realize that the love you have for yourself is more important than some pseudo image of the false normative standard of what family really is, you are so much better for it. And I would much rather build bridges than just walk around burning them. It's a lot harder, but it's worth it. And it, it takes a certain kind of strength to be like, look, this happened to me. I'm going to talk about it. And the response that you get from it as long as you're doing what you are set out to do in your journey, it doesn't matter. Everyone's going to have an opinion. Mm -hmm. Speaking your truth, walk in it. I think that's substance over symbolism as well. So tell me about Water to Spirit and some of the work that you're, you're currently doing. Even just the names of some of the workshops that you offer, the, the Silent Killer Unspoken and the Foster Care Challenge. Uh, Water to Spirit. Also as a metaphor, you know, when you think of water, it, it revives, it releases, and it releases toxins, and it replenishes you. So that's what I felt that my spirit needed to do in the spirit of others in marginalized communities. So the work in which that I do, I wanted to create workshops. I wanted to create films, children's books, and workshops that allowed individuals to revive their spirit by releasing the pain and replenishing those wounds and being so much better for starting their healing process, being a part of the solution and not the problem. And so Water to Spirit essentially is a, a organization that helps people with their healing journey where they are with what I have been able to create. The workshop presentations that I do, uh, for example, one that you mentioned, The Silent Killer Unspoken, about the foster care challenge. And I, I was in foster care. I was also in group homes as well. And I speak about the female dynamic of that, where, 
when you're in the process of hitting puberty and you are in foster care group homes and you are in a strange man and woman's house and you've just been violated and you finally learn that these things, you know, and it just speaks on these dynamics to assist with the youth who are in foster care that even though you are in this storm, you are surrounded by love, truly. And there is someone that, that needs you. So your strength and your perseverance and your resilience is the substance that the community needs. So you hold on, pain will end. And that is the acronym for hope. Hold on, pain ends. And I think that message with the foster care challenge is, is the, the affirmation that I feel that needs to be projected more with youth who are taken away from homes, their home. You know, I used to tell my fiance, even though we were in foster care, some people would say that that was better for us, but you're still comfortable with that chaos because you, that's all you know. And I also work with foster parents or volunteers who work with youth in foster care so they can better understand some of the barriers that that child is going through in the process of maybe being reunited with their parent, their mom or dad or whomever, or staying away from them. Uh, so that was one of them. Um, the Revive, Release and Replenish workshop is, is about self-esteem. Girl in Search of Dad workshop is about young girls who did not grow up with their fathers or a healthy male role model in their lives. And what we do is, you know, six weeks in, we address uh, some of the insecurities and challenges that the female youth may have may feel throughout that journey, uh, throughout their life of not having that and having that balance of uh, mom and dad. And I have a therapist attend as well. A lot of things come up and they get to write a letter to their fathers while they look in the mirror. And then they get to recognize that you are a part of your father. You are a part of your mother, but you are all the good in them. And sometimes we just have to remind the youth that we are all the good and even the people who have hurt us, if they're family. I had to remind myself that sometimes too. I am all the good of my mother and I'm all the good in my, of my father as well. And that, that helps with healing. That helps with forgiveness. Because sometimes we're so angry. I hate them. I hate them. But what you don't realize, sometimes when you're saying these things, you're really saying, I hate myself. Yeah. They made me hate myself. So instead, it's like, you know what? I'm all the good in you and you. I'm all that good. I am your awesome sense of humor. Or I got to be a part of the genetic where I'm creative or funny or whatever, smart or great with math. Those are the things you hold on to to help you with forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I hear you. I feel like gratitude practice is so important and, and yet also, you know, incredibly difficult. That is the hard, if it, hey, if it was meant to be easy, everybody would do it. <laughs> I told my spouse the other day, I said, I'm tired of being a bigger person. This person makes me want to cuss them out. But, you know, <laughs> it would be so much better for it, right? Well, it sounds like you're just doing such incredible work for a very, very important community and um, a vulnerable community. So it's so wonderful to hear your strength coming through and the gifts that you're giving to other people and other and women, especially. It's just incredible. Thank you. So just quickly before, before we go, would you call ADHD something else? Oh, my God. Yes. I was thinking about that question. I will call ADHD disparate. I would say a bunch of disparate energies in one capsule, and that's the mind. And that's all trying competing with each other to be dominant. So <laughs> I don't know what the word would be for that, but the only thing I came up with was like that analogy or like, yeah. I like disparate capsule. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a beautiful image. <laughs> All right. Well, I will definitely put a link to Water to Spirit and your email for anybody who can reach out to you. But thank you so much, Denisha. It's been a real pleasure hearing more about you and, and having you share your perspective. It's just so great. And thank you for being a strong woman and giving women like me a platform to speak our subjective truths. 
and um, to be a part of the healing and to be a part of the solution. So if there wasn't a you right now, I wouldn't be having this conversation. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Oh, it's the truth. Marvel it. <laughs> <laughs>